Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. So, good evening. Um, I'd like to begin by uh, dedicating the talk tonight to Montreal. I love this city. Um, There's a a wonderful uh, quote about meditation practice um, that goes like this. Uh, The small retreat is in the forests by the rivers. And the great retreat is to be anonymous in the city. Another translation is, the great retreat is to disappear in the city. So we can dedicate this talk to Montreal. I can, anyways. (laughs) So before I get started, um, let me also thank Elizabeth and Jason, uh, who've created, who are outside. (laughs) This looks like their wedding photo. (laughs) So they keep inviting me to come, and every time I come here, this community grows, and uh, it's really lovely. uh, It's also nice, I haven't said hi to everyone yet, but I see lots of familiar faces, so it's really lovely to be here. There is an old Zen saying. There's going to be a lot of sayings tonight. Uh, There's an old Zen saying that says, the world is upside down. The world is upside down. Does anybody feel this way? Sometimes you open the newspaper or you look at Facebook, and it's so obvious that the world is upside down. And this comes from a story about... uh, old Zen practitioner named Bird's Nest Roshi. Roshi used to mean uh, old man. So he was an elderly Zen teacher named Bird's Nest Roshi, and he got this name because early in the morning he would wander around the city and he would look up at trees looking for empty bird's nests. And then when he saw one, he would climb the tree And he would go sit in the empty bird's nests and meditate. And the story goes that one day he was sitting in the bird's nest meditating. And somebody walked by who was a friend of his and also a government official. 
and called up to him, Roshi, what are you doing meditating up in the tree? And he said, uh, I'm meditating. <coughs> and the official said, it's really dangerous up there. And Bird's Nest Roshi says, actually what you're doing is much more dangerous. Walking around pursuing your career, thinking that what's impermanent is permanent, and mistaking everything that you do as something that benefits yourself. It's uh, much less dangerous going out on a limb and meditating. So he got this phrase, bird's nest Roshi. And I've always loved this story, this punchline of going out on a limb and meditating. We're here this weekend uh, practicing yoga and sitting meditation. And I think a lot of the time people imagine that uh, meditation practice is about looking for peace or looking for calmness or somehow retreating from the city or retreating from one's life. Only to discover that uh, meditation practice is actually about entering our life, dropping into our city, and becoming more intimate with what's really going on. And that actually the problem most of us face all day is actually being on retreat, <coughs> is being dissociated, is being cut off from how things really are. And from that perspective, the world is always upside down. Always upside down. <coughs> There's a Slovenian philosopher who's on tour right now named Slavoj Žižek. Uh, I know he was in Montreal this year. And um, he's on tour campaigning against Buddhism <laughs> from university to university. Uh, he's calling Buddhist meditation uh, um, I want to get the quote correct. Well, anyways, he's calling Buddhist meditation a drug for the masses. That might echo previous statements about religion. Um, and what he's saying is that uh, there are so many people in the culture who are starting to take up mindfulness practice and starting to take up meditation practice and turning inward to find peace. And when things get hard, they turn inward to a private space. And that this, he feels, is the perfect religion for capitalism. It's the perfect religion for capitalism because turning inward and finding peace is a withdrawal from the world and is not in any way a confrontation with institutionalized forms of violence and greed and so many of the things that we think we only need to work on in ourselves. So, I don't agree with Zizek, but I actually think it's worth mentioning because I think his critique is really important. Because I think so many people have this idea that spiritual practice religious practice, meditation practice, is about going inward and finding some internal peace. And what I want to talk about tonight is how meditative practice is actually about 
dropping our preconceptions, dropping our old stories, dropping our superficial imagination so that we, be, can, be, we can become more engaged in our lives, more engaged in our relationships, more engaged with the politics and the ecology and the social circumstances of our cities and our families and our communities. So that's my thesis for tonight. And that we're living in a culture that is so distracted. So distracted. And paying attention is so powerful. It is really powerful to pay attention. We all know this in our own lives when someone has really paid attention to us. And to really pay attention nowadays uh, is like going out on a limb. It goes against the <coughs> momentum of our culture. To be able to stop running. To stop running and to pay attention. Oh, and I should have said that I'm going to talk for a little while. And, and then... Um, we can have a discussion. So when we pay attention, we're paying attention to the whole spectrum of how things really are, not just the way we want them to be. Which means uh, we're engaged in the culture. And this is very much the story of the Buddha. The Buddha was around uh, in what's now called the Axial Age. And it wasn't just the Buddha uh, we also know that it was the same time that Lao Tzu was around just before Patanjali, Rabbi Hillel, uh, so many great thinkers. And none of those people were trying to start a religion. All of those people had ideas about what makes a better person, what makes a deeper culture. And it was also at a time where we were seeing on earth the first cities. And all those teachers were very much engaged in practices within those cities, trying to create new cities and new cultures that could flourish. They were not, as this kind of colonial preconception of people like the Buddha um, have taught us, via Hermann Hesse also, um, that they were just wanderers in the forest running away from the cities. Actually, they were very, very involved in the issues of their cities. I have a friend who lives in Vancouver. Uh, well, she lives in Toronto, but she's in Vancouver deciding whether she should live there or not. And I was with her last week in Vancouver, and we went for a long walk through the city. And she complained the whole time about how she didn't like the architecture and didn't like the weather and so on. And we decided on this walk that she would start a new practice, which is she would travel all over Vancouver, and she would go take little flecks off buildings that she didn't like. <laughs> and then if there was some really bad city planning somewhere, she would take like a little pebble from the sidewalk. And then she would take all of these samples and put them in alcohol and make tinctures so she has a tincture from every neighborhood in Vancouver that she doesn't like. 
And when she gets down on Vancouver, she just takes some of the tincture. So it's like homeopathy <laughs> one, 101. <laughs> and I mention this because some of the names I've just talked about, like Patanjali or the Buddha, these were people who were taking the social circumstances of the time and they were engaging them in order to wake people up, not to create some kind of new system. So for example, when the Buddha started having people around him become monks, he wanted them to shave their head so that at first glance you wouldn't be able to tell their gender or their socioeconomic background, which in India at the time was a very radical thing to do. The other thing the Buddha suggested was that people wear robes. And he had a whole list of what the robes could be made out of. So he wanted the robes to be discarded material. So robes that were used in funeral services, uh, materials that were used from altars, materials that women used during menstruation, and that these would all be laundered and then cut up and sewed together to become a robe. Nowadays, if you go to a Buddhist temple, the robes are the finest cotton and silk. But originally, the idea was a robe would be garments that were discarded. And the Buddha also included in his community the people in the culture who were being discarded. And this is true in our culture also. We have so many people in our culture that we throw out, that we treat like garbage. And in the same way, healing in the body can only happen by including what's compartmentalized. Healing in our culture can also only happen by including what's compartmentalized. So uh, there's a wonderful magazine, I don't know if any of you read, called Yes Magazine. And in it, there's uh, this issue, there's a wonderful conversation between a woman named Leanne Simpson, who is an academic and storyteller, and uh, a very important uh, young female voice in the Idle No More movement, uh, in conversation with Naomi Klein, who uh, has just had a baby and is kind of speaking to Leanne as a mom. And I just wanted to read you a portion of uh, this. Uh, Leanne says, um, where I live has always been a struggle for me. Oh, she lives in southern Ontario. Has always been a struggle for me because I want to live in BC or the north because the land is pristine. It's easier emotionally for me. But I've chosen to live in southern Ontario and I've chosen to be a witness to this. And I think that's where in the politics of indigenous women and traditional indigenous politics, it's a politics based on love. That was the difference with Idle No More because there were so many women standing up. So when I think of the land, I think of the land as my mother. It's a familial relationship. I don't hate my mother because she's sick. 
I don't hate my mother because she's been abused. I don't stop visiting her because she's been in an abusive relationship and she has scars and bruises. If anything, I need to intensify that relationship because it's a relationship of nurturing and caring. And so I think of my own territory like this. I try to have an intimate relationship, that relationship of love, even though I can see the damage, to try and see that there's still beauty there. There's still a lot of beauty in Lake Ontario. It's one of those threatened lakes and it's dying and no one wants to eat the fish. But there's a lot of beauty in that lake and there's a lot of love still in that lake and I think of that lake as my mother. Mothers have a tremendous amount of resilience. They have a <coughs> tremendous amount of healing power. But I think this idea that you abandon something when it's been damaged is something we can't afford to do in southern Ontario and Quebec. Then Naomi says, but that's a totally different political project. The first stage is establishing that there's something left to love. My husband talks about growing up beside a lake you can't swim in and how that changes your relationship with nature. You think nature is somewhere else. So it's a different kind of environmental voice that speaks to the wounded as opposed to the perfect and the pretty. And then Leanne finishes by saying this. If you can't swim in it, canoe across it. <laughs> Find a way to connect to it. When the lake is too ruined to swim in or to eat from, that's when healing ceremonies come in. Well, this really touched me, this, this passage. So what she's saying is, when something is wounded, you intensify your relationship with it. You intensify your relationship with it. And to me, this is the same as Bird's Nest Roshi, going out on a limb. To intensify your relationship with what's wounded is to go out on a limb and take a risk. I have a son, I have two sons, uh, one of them is nine, and one of them is five weeks old. Mm -hmm. yeah. So if you're, the sound effects are just <laughs> So one of, one of the things about a five-year-old is that wh when you're hanging out with the five-year-old, I don't know how many, uh, sorry, a five-week-old, um, you can basically hold him on one arm, you know. And you look at his face, and then I notice, it's like baby TV, you know. I can watch it for hours and hours and hours. And then I start to notice that whatever his face is doing, my face is doing. And then as soon as he needs a diaper change, I'm right there. And physiologically in my body, I'm right there meeting his needs. We all know this about babies. We're right there to meet their needs. <laughs> I love when people come over and hold him because I see on their face them just mirroring his face. And uh, 
Then, as we get older, uh, we can't get our needs met as immediately as our parents can meet our needs. Your adult lover cannot meet your needs like your parents did when you were one month old. <laughs> Even though we tried. <laughs> um, and so, what we end up having is frustration. We end up having frustration. And I think all of yoga practice and all of the Dharma is really a, an incredible elegy to frustration. To how we work with and how we contain and how we soothe ourselves in the face of frustration. And the main kind of frustration that we have in our society that we all need to work with is just the frustration of not having every need met in every moment. For example, boredom. How many of us get bored? How many kids are not learning right now how to be bored? And how to be frustrated in boredom? Because they see their parents and their school teachers and so on immediately when there's a moment of time being on the iPhone, being on the iPad, finding a way out of boredom. So I think it's really important that we see practice as this ability to really open up to frustration. And all of the tools that we're learning in practice is to be able to stay in that gap between desire and craving. So to be able to have a desire for something and to see the difference between our desire and our craving. And not letting those two things be mixed up. Of course, we all know the cliche version or misunderstanding of spiritual teaching as getting rid of desire. And anybody who's working on that practice is a time bomb. <laughs> I gave the example yesterday when we were talking about this uh, because I think all of us have maybe done meditative practice where we've been in community and everyone's trying to repress their desire. And then the day ends and you say, let's go out for dinner. Where do you want to go? And everyone just stands there and I'm open. <laughs> I, I can, I, I'm not really attached to where we go. I can go, I can go anywhere. Which to me is just passive aggressive. <laughs> so, so it's really important, I think, for us to recognize that we have needs and we have desires. And a, a unique human being is somebody who has unique desires. You love one thing, you may not love something else. This is okay. We should have a desire to have beautiful cities. We should have a desire to have much better architecture. I learned recently that architecture is a field of practice that has the least number of female practitioners than any other professional field. And of course, you can see it. <laughs> so,
So I think one of the things that our yoga practice, that our meditative practice is teaching us is how to be in frustration. How to be open to frustration. And how to work within the spectrum of frustration without always having to find <coughs> false forms of satisfaction. Superficial forms of nourishment. One of the practices that we're working on today, here uh, during the workshop, was what I call riding the wave. So here's how it works. During the day, when you start to feel a strong mood coming on, maybe anger or uh, craving, then as soon as you start to feel the wave building, go sit down in a chair. Sit down in a chair, find your breath, and ride out the wave. Ride out the wave. So feel your anger cresting, or feel your desire or craving cresting, and then experience it starting to fade away, and follow it through right to the very end. And what most of you are going to do with that is you're going to say, that is such a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> I can picture Michael doing that. That is really cool. I'm going to tell people about that and post it on my wall. <laughs> but I really encourage you to actually try this practice. Um, I think this practice is actually a profound form of social action. That when you feel craving, when you feel anger, when you feel out of control, as you feel the wave building, you stop. And you sit down and you ride out the wave. <coughs> And this is a really powerful practice for anyone struggling with addiction, which is everybody in this room. Because often people who are struggling with addiction will do that practice once, and they'll say to themselves, wow, wow, I actually have power over my mood. And this is really important with negative moods. Because negative moods only stay afloat when they're injected with stories. When they're injected with language. And one of the interesting things about sitting in a chair is it harnesses the storyteller. It harnesses that part of the mind that when you get into a mood, keeps it afloat by investing in it with stories. So the real practice of a yogi is to practice experiencing raw sensation. Just raw sensation free of the stories that you superimpose on the sensation. And then, to me, this is actually intensifying our relationships. 
because then we're in relationship with what's actually going on, not with what we think should be going on. Does this make sense, this mm -hmm. practice? Can you imagine this? Yeah. Um, aren't we disintensifying, unintensifying our relationship with the story, though? When? Like, the story is actually going on as well, right? And you're saying to let the story go. Yeah. So it, the, it the first step is to sit down and to stop. And when you stop, you allow in what you're feeling. The second phase of the practice is then to try to experience the raw sensation of what you're feeling, independent from the story you have about it. Good luck. <laughs> Let me know how it goes. But does that make sense to you? Yeah, I just don't understand why we're letting go of the story. We're, we're letting go of the story that we think is built into what we feel so that we can feel what we're feeling at a more primary level. Because the story tends to be focused on the object. So for example, um, I'm lonely. Does anybody get lonely anymore? <laughs> I'm lonely, I feel a little sad, so I'm gonna go on email. Oh no, the power's out. This is a major crisis. <laughs> so then you get on your phone, but oh no, the internet's down. Then the sadness and the loneliness start increasing, so you go to the freezer, because the ice cream might be melting, and you go eat a tub, of ice cream. Well, we're yogis, so it's vegan sprouted <laughs> cashews, basically. <laughs> Frozen cashews <laughs> from Crudescence. <laughs> and then, afterwards, you feel really badly. You feel badly, first of all, because it didn't uh, make the sadness go away. Then you feel bloated, because cashews are really hard on the digestive system. And also, you're broke, because raw cashews are like $700 <laughs> to make that amount. Plus, you probably then had to get a Vitamix, which is another $500. It's really expensive, actually, to be a yogi. Um, so the problem is, is that uh, when you're sad, when you're lonely, what tends to happen is instead of actually just feeling the sensation of sadness or loneliness, which I call yoga, which is, is intimacy, instead of intensifying our relationship with the sadness or the loneliness, we inject the sadness and the loneliness with stories. And then we're in relationship with the stories, which then keeps the mood going. And then we don't really know what we're feeling we don't really know what we need. We're actually not even in our bodies. We're just in the realm of stories. So this is why it's important to see that separation. Really important. Yeah. Is the goal to do something later? With your non-story? Um, the, the goal is 
to be free. And you can't be free of something unless you intensify your relationship with it. You can't be free of something you're trying to get away from. So the, the goal of all practice really is compassion. And uh, compassion is the, the, the love that arises when we're not compulsive, when we're not self-centered. So the problem with these stories is that they all revolve around me. So that's why we're trying to find some space. The ground. Yeah. Um, there's a wonderful story about this, uh, where there's a teacher at the front of the room. They tend to be there. It's kind of weird. Um, and in the old days, uh, the way uh, a talk would be given is the teacher would be at the front of the room, and next to the teacher, there would be an attendant. And on the other side of the teacher, there would be uh, a calligrapher. I always think it should be someone signing. Um, but it was a calligrapher, and the calligrapher would be an artist who in a few strokes would try to capture the meaning of the talk. And the teacher would give the talk, and the attendant would, you know, bring water or provide a cool watch. Um, so this teacher is giving a talk, um, and just before the talk, he turns to his attendant, because it's really hot, and he sees that the attendant has beside him a fan, a beautiful old fan. And the fan is made out of rhinoceros bone. So he says to the attendant, hand me the rhinoceros fan. And the attendant picks up the fan and sees that the fan is broken and freezes and doesn't know what to do. And then the teacher looks over and says, well then bring me the rhinoceros. And then the student is totally confused <laughs> and is frozen in his or her tracks. So, this is a very famous uh, koan, and it's one that I really love. Uh, you can imagine that in monasteries what would happen is that people who had really nice things in their house uh, would realize at some point, I don't really need these nice things, I'm going to donate them to the monastery. Which is also kind of funny, because the monastery doesn't really need them either. Um, but anyways, it was the practice. And so someone probably had this very nice uh, rhinoceros fan, maybe it had like some calligraphy of the moon in it or something, or a rhinoceros. And um, maybe the teacher knew that the fan was broken. And the teacher turns to the attendant and says, bring me the rhinoceros fan. And the attendant sees it's broken. But the teacher is actually teaching the attendant. And the teacher is saying, Bring me what's broken. Don't bring me your perfect childhood. <laughs> your perfect love. Your perfect life. But the student doesn't know how to bring what's broken. And the student freezes. Just like we're asked all the time, show me what's broken. 
We all know how hard it is to have deep friendship with somebody when they can't show us their brokenness. We know what a mess it makes in cities when we try to hide broken people. So the teacher is saying, bring me your brokenness. And the student freezes. It's his persona. He's stuck. And then the teacher pushes him a little, well, then bring me the rhinoceros, which is basically like saying, just bring me the whole thing. And then the student is totally frozen <laughs> and stuck. And this is how teaching happens. The teacher prods the student a little bit, and usually it just gets the student in the right way that the student freezes. And then you feel how you're frozen. And then you need to intensify your relationship with the frozenness, like a tincture, to undo it. Anyways, the punchline of the story is the calligrapher then paints a big rhinoceros. <laughs> and the teacher looks over and realizes he got it. Just paints the whole, the rhinoceros means everything. Everything. So your brokenness is included in everything. So bring the brokenness to practice, and then you have a life. Then you have a practice. And this is what we need to be doing with our polluted lakes. This is what we need to be doing with our rivers. This is what we need to be doing in our community. Just like those monks in their robes made out of discarded material. That's not a metaphor for recycling. <laughs> because we're living at a time where we really need to invest in our future by including what's broken now. Capitalism does not believe in its own future. So it takes what's here now and says, fuck it. We'll just take what we can get. This is the attitude of extractivism. Let's extract whatever we can now. And from the perspective of yoga, this is stealing. It's stealing from the future in the present and calling it growth. But it's stealing. And the opposite of extractivism is intensifying relationship. Or as Leanne Simpson said in the interview, it's a politics of love. It's a politics of intimacy. It's a politics of including what's broken. And that's the heart of a, a secular religious practice. A secular Sec secular comes from the Latin seculum, which means of the time. To have a religion, to have a practice of the time. A spiritual practice engaged in the times. And you have to go out on a limb to do that. So I wanted to just end with uh, someone else's quote. 
And, uh, and then I thought we could have a little break, and then we could have a discussion. Does this sound reasonable? Okay. Um, every year in London, England, uh, there is a, a, a lecture at a group with a group called BAFTA, which is the British Academy of Film and Television Arts. And last uh, fall, the person they had lecture was Charlie Kaufman. Uh, some of you might know him as an eccentric writer uh, of comedy and very, very clever Hollywood scripts. Um, so anyways, I just wanted to read to you uh, the beginning of his uh, talk because I think it sums up better than I could uh, what I've been trying to say about uh, bringing our real lives forward. So here's what he says. Keep in mind that his audience is the British Academy of Film and Television Arts. <laughs> People all over the world spend countless hours of their lives every week being fed entertainment in the form of movies, TV shows, newspapers, YouTube videos, and the internet. It's, it's ludicrous to believe that this does not alter our brains. It's also equally ludicrous to believe that at the very least, this mass distraction and manipulation is not convenient for the people who are in charge. People are starving. They may not know it because they're being fed mass-produced garbage. The packaging is colorful and loud, but it's being produced in the same factories that make Pop-Tarts and iPads. People sitting around thinking, what can we do to get people to buy more of these? And they're very good at their jobs. But that's what it is you're getting, because that's what they're making. They're selling you something. And the world is built on this now. Politics and government are built on this. Corporations are built on this. And now our relationships are built on this. We're starving, all of us. We're killing each other. We're hating each other. And we're calling each other evil because it's become about marketing. We want to win because we're lonely and empty and scared. And we're led to believe winning will change all that. But there is no winning. What can be done? So here's, here's his answer. So that was like the, the down. <laughs> now he's going to say what to do. What can be done? I, I would just say, bring me the rhinoceros. <laughs> but he has a few more words. He says, what can be done? Say who you really are. Really say it in your life and in your work. Tell someone out there who is lost, someone not yet born, someone who won't be born for 500 years. Your art will be a record of your time. It can't help but be that. But more importantly, if you're honest about who you are, you'll help someone else be less lonely in their world because that person will recognize him or self in you and it will give them hope. It's done so for me and I keep having to rediscover it. 
its profound importance in my life. Give that to the world rather than selling something to the world. <coughs> Don't allow yourself to be tricked into thinking that the way things are in the world is the way the world must work, and that in the end, selling is what everyone must do, try not to. I like this last one. Mm -hmm. Selling is what everyone must do, try not to. So to me, this is a politics of love. So, thank you very much. Let's take a break for 10 minutes, have a quick smoke, <laughs> and then we'll come back and have a discussion. So thank you very much.